Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The walls were covered in grass cloth and decorated with small jewel-toned landscape paintings he had unearthed at flea markets in France. Above the dining room table hung an intricate Victorian map of London, which John purchased at an antiquarian book fair. Its muted tones glowed as if the old streets continued their pulsing, and the river Thames, that teal snake, glissaded still. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Sunday Taylor, author of The Anglophile's Notebook. An American in her early 40s, heartbroken at not having been able to have children and whose marriage is failing, goes to England to rejuvenate and to start what she hopes will be a book about Charlotte Bronte. In this story of romance, family intrigue, and literary heroes, Sunday Taylor's lush, British-sounding prose is as delicious as the cream teas and garden-fresh meals her heroine enjoys while the pieces of her life finally fall into place. Hi, Taylor. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you decide to write a novel at this stage in your life? Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) Well, uh, actually, about five years ago, the idea occurred to me. Um, And at the time, I was fascinated with the idea of people meeting online, say on blogs, websites, you know, now Instagram, and corresponding that way, you know, discovering that they shared interests, passions, whatever it happened to be. And then the concept of them meeting in real life, what would happen? Would they become friends? And this actually happened to me with a couple wonderful women I met through their blogs. And so I pictured about five years ago, my heroine on a plane from Los Angeles to London to interview a woman she's never met before, only through that woman's blog. And her name is Beth Ramsey. And meeting this woman, meeting Beth Ramsey will change her life. And that was the beginning, the genesis, the origin of how it came about. And it's something that I've been interested in for it because we were so thick in the world of blogs back then. And I was, you know, an ardent reader of many of them. And and it was fun to to meet these people. And I became friends, as I said, with a couple of them. So it was really wonderful. So, yeah, so that's how I came to write it. But uh, truth be told, I've been reading books my whole life especially set in England. And I've always wanted to write a book. I just never got the right idea. And then once I got it, I just couldn't stop. Mm. You admit that you're an Anglophile and you go to England each year. Why did you write this particular book? Well, um, I, I wanted it to be set in England because truly England and London for a book lover is the most magical place. And my character, Claire, is a book lover. She's a book reviewer. She's a magazine editor. She thinks, lives, breathes books, and her head is filled with 
characters, passages, quotes from poetry, um, they're, they're in her head. And I wanted her to be in London and England because it's such a great place to be if you love writers and you love books. And I, I put her in, you know, my favorite places that I've gone because I'm a book lover. I'm a bibliophile. And, um, you know, I wanted her to be in some of the places I'd gone to and enjoyed, um, just the beautiful, beautiful old bookstores in London and, you know, the ability to tour Charles Dickens house and meet up with Bronte scholars at the private members only London library, you know, founded in the 1840s by Thomas Carlyle and take, have drinks in a pub where, you know, 200 years ago, there was a fist fight over someone writing a disparaging piece about the King's mistress. And, you know, all of these things that I've gathered together through my journeys there and research, I was able to make a settings and places where she could really thrive as um, a literary person, a lover of writers, and a lover of Charlotte Bronte. So it all came to me because I wanted to, who was this woman, Claire, who was on this airplane on her way to London? And I looked around my bookshelves one day and I saw, I have probably every book ever written about Charlotte Bronte or the Brontes. And I had a brand new biography. Um, First name of the writer is Claire. And I looked at that name and I thought, who who could this person possibly be on her way to London to write a book on Charlotte Bronte? And then it just kept on growing out of that. So I was um, really excited that I could bring my love of the literary quality of, of England into a book about a personal story of a woman who's at a crossroads in her life with lots of unresolved issues, you know, about her marriage, her mother, her childlessness, um, and even her career and have them kind of all play out on this trip with mm-hmm. her, you know, she kind of views travel as transformative and, you know, she writes for a travel magazine and in the, her case, it, it is transformative, but she has no idea on that airplane on her way to London that her life is going to change. So I got excited about putting her story in England and able, I was able to do a lot of research over the five years I was writing it through, all my trips to England. Mm-hmm. So the Anglophiles notebook brims with obsession. The people who are obsessed with the Brontes, the character who is obsessed with finding a husband, the young woman who's obsessed with finding a mother figure. Can you say more about what intrigued you about obsession? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I, I do know that just in terms of my literary obsession, um, I have had an obsession with the Brontes. I, about, in I think it was 1996, a, real, a landmark book came out called The Brontes, Wild Genius on the Moors, The Story of a Literary Family by Julia Barker. And it was really a long book. And I read it from page to page. And I, because I had read, you know, the, 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 the most famous books by the Bronte sisters, but I didn't really know about their lives. And they're really the kind of writers whose lives are as compelling as their books. And I remember telling my daughters the stories about the Brontes in the car on the way home from school. And they were like young teenagers. And and I realized they were fascinated. And it was just a fascination that, it, I don't know that it became an obsession, but it was, to, it was a total fascination on my part. And I 
I, you know, I'm fascinated with other writers too and obsessed with Virginia Woolf and her story and the Bloomsbury group. But I wanted this writer to be obsessed with Charlotte Bronte because it would mirror her own, uh, her own sadness about uh, not feeling loved by her own mother. Uh, Because after all, the Brontes were motherless and they were isolated the siblings, and this was a big theme throughout their lives, finds its way into all of their books. And my character, by having Bronte kind of by her side as she is researching this book, um, is it's it it she feels connected because she has gone through a little bit of that motherless feeling. And so I there were lots of connections I could make between Claire's story and the things will happen to Claire on this trip. And not exactly what happened to the Brontes, but some things that happened in their books. And it was a nice kind of parallel uh, kind of universe in a way, but modernized. And um, it was a good obsession to have for this book. And she she is obsessed. Um, and true, the there yes, there there's a lot about people, children, grown children, who still have that hole in their heart where they feel they felt ignored, maybe unloved and even abandoned by a parent figure. And that's at the heart of the book for Claire with her mother. But I have a couple other characters who have that same sort of, I'm putting in quotation marks, orphan-like feeling. So that was another reason to kind of bring in the Brontes and mix it all up and, you know, see where it would go. But, um, yeah, I think that um, I think a character with, an, with obsessions is pretty interesting to read about. Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't, you know, purpose. It just kind of evolved that way for me as I was writing it. So um, you talk every everybody in the book who with whom Claire speaks um, somehow has a feeling about which Bronte sister they adore. I didn't realize that was a thing that people were obsessed with one or the other of the sisters. Is that how you feel in real life about the Bronte sisters and which one is the one you adore? I really, I, I think it's a thing. I do think it's a real thing. And I know that um, there have been books written about, do you identify more with a Kathy Earnshaw from the Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre from Jane Eyre? And, you know, there's such different books. Um, I, uh, my favorite is definitely Charlotte. And, um, the reason why is as the more research I did about her, she really was a feminist, which a lot of people don't think of when they think of Charlotte Bronte, but you know, it was the 19th century Victorian times when, you know, women were certainly not encouraged to write, but she was quite ambitious and strategic about getting her book published and her sister's books published. This was unusual at that time. Also, she was a feminist when, oh, and she also had the brilliant idea to publish all three of their books and Emily's and hers under male pseudonyms. So that gave them a better chance. But she was also a feminist. And one of the reasons I like her so much, even in terms of marriage, because a lot of, I mean, she only lived to be, I think it was 39. Um, she received, she did eventually get married in the last year of her life, which was very sad because she died eight months into the marriage. But she got two other marriage proposals, which I didn't know. And I started researching the book and I was, oh my goodness. And 
She turned them both down because she really wanted to hold out for that kind of, well, kind of Wuthering Heights kind of love, that fiery, you know, um, make you willing to die for this person. And she says that in a letter. Now, I don't know that that's the love she wound up with. She married the assistant curate um, who worked for her father, Patrick Bronte, who was the minister of the, of the church there, the reverend. But she did hold out for true love. And um, it, her father didn't even want her to marry this guy because at this point, Charlotte was famous. And her father thought this could be an opportunist. I don't know about this. But she held out. And so at a time when, you know, women mostly married for security, not so much for love. Um, she was kind of a starry, you know, idealist in a way. And, and, and it, to me, it read as a feminist, which makes me admire her even more so than her great writing. Mm. So Claire tells Beth Parker, Beth Ramsey, Beth Ramsey, right. Beth Ramsey. Um, who, with whom she met through her magazine via a blog. Um, Beth is a London-based interior designer, and she tells her that she wants to write about Charlotte Bronte from a new angle. With, so my question is, with thousands of books out there, does such a thing exist? Is there a new angle? <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know. I think that there are books definitely already written about what I am saying that my character is going to write about the fascination. What Claire learns in the writing of her book, she, you know, she wants to want, she wants to explore why are so many people obsessed with the Brontes? Why do they make the pilgrimage to Haworth? Why do they want to walk into the house where these sisters wrote their famous books? So she, that's her goal. That's why she writes her books. But as she writes it, she begins to, learn, it's more about how that kind of a journey, well, how, what does it reveal about the person that's on the pilgrimage? And what does it lead them to learning about themselves? And in her case, it's personal. Because when her mother told her about the Brontes throughout her whole life, and that it made Claire obsessed, and she read everything about them she could get her hands on, you know, she realized that's when she felt closest to her, her mother. So writing the book is a way to make sense of her life. And the, um, you know, the book is going to be published probably, I don't know if it's published, I don't think it's published quite yet when the book ends, but it's going to be published. And it um, it is become a personal book for her. And I, I could see that, um, how someone could write a book about the adoration of an author, the love of an author, and how that journey might uh, teach them something about themselves and and why they why the, the that myth of the author resonates with them the love of the the author why is that so important to them and I I so I'm you know obviously um, have created uh, this idea that Claire is going to be a write, going to write a book that's different than any of the other books that have come out. So in a happy coincidence, Beth's uncle is, lives in that area where, um, where the Brontes lived and collects Bronte materials. And it turns out that he's looking for an assistant. So why is Claire somebody that he, why would he hire her to be his assistant? What would her, why would her background put her in that position? Well, you know, it's something actually, I wonder if, I can't remember if I mentioned this in related, you're talking about Philip Berry. Okay, Philip Berry is the um, 
he's kind of a recluse. He's Beth's uncle. He lives up, he lives in Haworth. He lives up in Yorkshire and Haworth and he, um, he's mysterious. He's been collecting, you know, Bronte material for years. He's been snatching it up at auctions and he has a, a renowned collection. Um, and uh, his so so his niece Beth Ramsey, who's a friend now of Claire's, has highly recommended Claire. But Claire has all along been writing um, a column that a lot of people are aware of, and I think is quite famous, called the Anglophile's Notebook. And a lot of the people that she meets in England know about her column and know about her the depth of her knowledge. And um, she's been writing about the the column. In the column, she explores British literature both classic and contemporary, and she's written a lot about the Brontes. So I think that, um, you know, anyone who would know her background and her credentials, and she's kind of impressive, uh, probably would be confident to hire her. And plus, she is doing research on her own Bronte book. So obviously, you know, they're simpatico, um, fans of the Brontes and scholars of the Brontes. So uh, that is the reason that I, I had her kind of yeah, I had him interview her actually quite quickly, but I think he's desperate and she, she seems good to him, you know, the first time they meet and, um, and it turns out to be a good situation for both of them. Mm-hmm. So the uncle, it turns out has an, has found an original copy supposedly of a story supposedly written by Charlotte Bronte. Was that all out of your fevered imagination, including the story or do such stories really turn up sometimes? Okay, uh, the 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 uh, the bookstore owner John Spencer has that story. She, you know, she meets. Um, I know what you're referring to, but it's actually John Spencer. She, oh, she John meets, Spencer does. Yeah, she mm-hmm. on her, you know, early on in London, walks into a bookstore she's never been in before, and she meets the owner, and they bond immediately over their love of books and the love of the Brontes. And he said he 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 shows her he has in his possession an. Un, a, a manuscript that may be an unpublished short story by Charlotte Bronte, which all hinges on a letter from Charlotte's bro- bro- brother Branwell, which has gone missing, and they've got to find that letter. So, yes, there have been um, manuscripts that were unpublished. Uh, there was one unfinished manuscript that is was made into a book. Um, it's called Emma Brown, written by another author who took what was there and then, you know, flushed it out, made it to a full-fledged book. But um, there are still a lot of things floating around by the Brontes that are not collected under one roof, if you know what I mean. Like the Bronte Parsonage has the ho- the um, the largest holding of Bronte material in the world, but there are still things out there that were purchased by collectors after the Brontes died, everything was, so much was sold um, after all of them were dead. So much was sold and a lot of it was kept, but a lot of it was sold to the point of people were cutting up letters and selling portions of letters. So this stuff has kind of been floating, you know, all around the world and is to this day still being discovered and even purchased um, try, uh, the Bronte Parsonage recently purchased finally a little short story that was written by Charlotte when they, you know, the kids were all like, you know, teenagers when they were writing all their little short stories about uh, those toy soldiers that Branwell got. 
because it was it was held by another collector and they had to you know raise money to get it back to the parsonage so this there's still stuff floating around the world and and I don't know about too many manuscripts that are I think they probably most of them are all spoken for and, and discovered but my idea yeah, was my idea and I wrote the short story and it was um, my idea to have him that he had a manuscript that he was very excited about and because Claire was such a Bronte um, fan and scholar that he wanted to enlist her to help him solve the mystery of was this really by Charlotte Bronte? So, um, yeah. Well, I thought it was, or you did an amazing job of writing in the exact style of Charlotte Bronte. <laughs> Thank how, you. how did you do that? Well, my editor did help me. I had a wonderful editor on this book who was, the amazing thing is she was a kindred spirit who also loves the Brontes. So together we were a good team. And she actually helped me research and get, you know, I, I wrote the whole story and then she helped me a little bit with the language and some of the idiom, the idi- idiomatic expressions of the time. She did that research and, and together, I mean, I wrote it, but she helped give the little flourishes of, um, mm-hmm. dial- of, of how they spoke then. And it was really just, you know, she just really helped embellish it. It was wonderful. Collaboration. I had a few quick, quick questions. You had a, you had lots of little side stories, such as the one about John Stuart Mill's servant throwing Thomas Carlyle's manuscript in the fire. Did you make up those stories? Or are they all true? Oh, no, those-, those are all true. Anything okay. that was, um, I mean, other than the Charlotte Bronte manuscript, right? But all the other things were true. Yes, yes, that was um, Thomas Carlyle's house that I I visited. I visited, so I had Claire visit. And you know, he's not a very well known figure at this point, but at the time in the nineteenth century, his house was like a literary shrine. That he and his wife were a Victorian celebrity couple, and all the great writers visited him there. He had a literary salon, and um, so his house, which was so important as a meeting place for all these prominent writers at the time has been preserved and it's just beautiful. And you can go and buy a ticket and walk through and learn all the stories uh, about all the people that visited. And it's really a fascinating place. So yeah, those, those stories are true. And I read a lot on Thomas Carlyle and even the docents talk when I was there, I was taking notes and I, you know, I wrote down a lot of information. Uh, Claire, in her travels, stays in magnificent hotels with stunning floral arrangements, and she enjoys delicious meals accompanied by wonderful wines, and she has this gorgeous wardrobe to choose from while traveling. So <laughs> is she just fabulously wealthy or I, what? You know, this is what how I – she's married to a very successful music producer, and um, – so they are comfortable. They don't live in a grand house in Los Angeles. It's just never been anything she's been interested in. But obviously they've moved in those circles because he represents and works for a lot of, you know, very successful music- musicians. So when she's traveled with him, she has been able to um, definitely dine in some nice restaurants um, and her clothing, I never saw as anything that was particularly designer-like. It's just that she likes to dress kind of like the writer. She likes to dress like Virginia Woolf or, you know, the Bloomsbury crowd. And um, 
you know, so some of her outfits, that's true, they are described and uh, they are, they're, they're very kind of romantic, romantic. And um, I think kind of, you know, feeding her inner muse of uh, of a scholarly person um, walking through London and, you know, the way she wants to, the way she wants to feel. But um, I, um, yeah, I have her going to some of the places that a tourist would, would probably like to see when they're there. Some of the, like, Claridge's is so much fun to go to and have tea. And um, it's something that I have had the good fortune to do once or twice. And it's definitely a very special event. So, you know, I had her do that. And because she is an American, she doesn't live there. She's visiting. So, you know, these things are, um, and these places are kind of like, um, you hope to do that. You know, you'd like to do those things and see what it's all about. Um, and then John Spencer does take her to the Ritz that she'd never been to. And that's kind of got a great history and a spectacular ambiance. Um, so yeah, I didn't picture her. I, I guess I, her husband's very, you know, comfortable, which means she would be too, but it's definitely not her focus. You know, why would Claire as an American, maybe this is typical, um, she becomes so British while she's there. She thought about arriving someplace at gone three. I assume that means after three. Yes. Yes. Well, when she's up in Yorkshire, first of all, she's half British. Her mother was British. Um, she has a British passport. Um, she um, listened to her mother talk, you know, all those years growing up. So she's going to have some British expressions in her vocabulary and, but once she gets up into Yorkshire, gone three, is that what you said? I think gone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's how they talk. That's how they talk. And um, so I started to have that within the narrative a little bit to just kind of maybe, um, you know, f- uh, fortify the atmosphere, feed the atmosphere of where they are. So we could have like maybe a more expansive picture of the ambiance of the place. Hmm. Um, so, during scary or potentially dangerous moments in your story, you didn't dwell. You you told us afterwards what had happened. So we weren't on the edge of our seats the way we were when we read Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights. By the way, I'm a Kathy. Does <laughs> your choosing to tell the story in that way have something to do with the way the Bronte sisters wrote? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. So... We, did you just say that the Brontes wrote like that edge of your seat yes. kind of narrative, but that my book is not structured that way? Is that what right. you're saying? Right. You didn't do that to us. You didn't make us afraid. I guess not. I guess it's not that kind of a book. Yeah, I guess it's not that kind of a book. I, I, um, I, you know, she's got some stuff to deal with and she has some tough things to deal with, but she's never really in danger. And, um, she's just, um, she's kind of getting through this next chapter of her life. And, um, um, you know, the, the story is told about, um, the different, the different, um, what do I want to say? Footsteps along that path. But, um, you know, when, well, I will say that, um, when, um, Philip Berry, when the fire is started at Philip Berry's house, um, you know, they're all kind of running around, but you're right. It's not, it's not a book along the lines of a Jane Eyre with all the, the, um, 
com- you know, completely gripping um, suspense and, you you know, that kind of a thing. Um, I guess it's just the way I told the story. <laughs> I, I thought it might have had something to do with the Bronte sisters, <laughs> that you were making a comment of some kind. So, so Sunday, what are you working on next? Will it be focused on some other great writer? Is it going to be set in England? Is it going to be the Anglophile's handbag? I mean, what, what's next for you? <laughs> I, you know, I have started a little something and it is set in England, but it's so new that I just, I, it's, it's not really worth talking about, but I, it, I do seem to go back to England. It definitely is become fertile ground, I guess, for my imagination and probably it'll be set there, but you know, and it's about two sisters. That's, that's about all I can say. Mm, okay. I'll look forward to it. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Sunday Taylor. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for joining me again. This is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Sunday Taylor, author of The Anglophile's Notebook. Hope you find a juicy novel to delve into. Happy reading.